0: Welcome to episode 73 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Katie Swan. I'm not going to go on too much, I'll be honest. It's, it's Halloween. I'm getting pulled away by the kids to go and do a safe trick or treat around Sotogrande, Grande. But it's a fantastic listen. As ever, big thank you to you all for your support. Sit back, enjoy Katie's story. And I'm going to pass you over to Katie Swan. So, Katie Swan, a massive welcome to Control the Controllables. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks a lot for having me.
0: It's, it's great to have you on. And you're, we're both in Spain right now. Is the, is the sun shining as much up in the north as it is down in the south right now?
1: Uh, I doubt it. No, it's been a pretty rough October so far. I love rain.
0: So yeah. you, why would you move to Spain to a place where it rains? Why wouldn't, why, you know, why wouldn't you come down here? When, although when you were in Sotter Grande a few years ago, it also rained as well. So you haven't had much luck.
1: No, yeah. So the reason I'm here is because my coach Esteban Carroll lives here. So I, I came here a couple of months ago to, to do some work with him. And yeah, I've decided to make it my base. So that's why I'm in Gijon.
0: Great. And and you told me off camera learning the lingo as well, huh?
1: Yeah, I've been studying pretty hard and then also working on it in real life too, which I think is the best way to practice is just trying to be confident and, and go for it in public.
0: So we should set a goal, Katie. Me and you podcast twelve months time <laughs> in, in Spanish.
1: Right. Yeah, I'm down. I need to keep working though. Yeah. Uh,
0: I'll just have to make sure I have the questions written at the side. It'll not quite be in chat format. It might just be questions. Um, But yeah, before we go on, Katie, obviously, I know a lot of people obviously in the tennis world will know who Katie Swan is, but a little introduction. There's obviously lots of great things we can say about Katie, but currently is 268 in the world. WTA had a career high of 163 and, grand slam finalist in australia in 2015 in the juniors you know has got a got a great career ahead of of her we're going to get into her life in tennis we're going to get into you know her opinions on on lots of different things but i guess people listening will they haven't seen your name in a draw for a while katie so what can we expect for the for the rest of 2020
1: it's hard to say, actually, at the moment. I've, um, I've been struggling since July with, with some injury problems. Um, I tried actually playing one of the exhibition events in the UK uh, at the beginning of July and I actually went into a full back spasm. Uh, so I was recovering from that for a while and have had a couple of other things going on since then. Um, at the moment, struggling with a, a left wrist injury, which I'm kind of just taking it day by day, um, and I don't know at the moment if what the plans would be for me for a schedule. But I'm kind of just waiting until I'm I'm ready. I'm not really putting any pressure on timelines for events. Um, so yeah, I'm just just trying to get healthy. That's the number one priority at the moment.
0: And were yeah. you in Royal Hampton when the Battle of Brits was going on?
1: I was. Yeah, it was it was tough for me to, yeah. to be around everyone and not be able to compete uh, but at the same time I actually did a couple of matches uh, commentary so I had nice. a, bit of a different experience and yeah that was not easy for me to be there but obviously the event was great and seemed like everyone enjoyed it.
0: Yeah no the atmosphere was incredible I've had a few of the guys on and I said I was very jealous. You know, there's not oft, often I'm jealous sat in Spain looking looking at the UK weather. But those four or five days, I wanted so badly to be there, to be, to be involved in it. So as a player, it must have been difficult that you couldn't get on there. But hopefully next year it'll happen again.
1: Yeah, it would be great if they can make it an annual thing for sure.
0: And how was the first commentary experience? Is that a future for you?
1: I don't know. I enjoyed it I was actually really I was so nervous the first one I did um, I did a mixed doubles and then I, actually, I did a, a match between Jodie and Emma right, with, okay. with uh, Naomi Cavadish which went I think it went well then I mean, you have to ask people that listen to it but yeah I think it was good
0: and were you playing the role of I guess the expert so you were kind of coming in and giving a bit of analysis to it
1: yeah I think Naomi was kind of just asking me my opinion on things and it's not something that I'm really comfortable with talking like that openly yeah. but when when I was able to calm the nerves, I yeah. was basically just talking about what I know so I think once I realized that it became easier.
0: That's oh, so interesting no, I mean I've, I've been fortunate to do a little bit and we've had Jonathan Overend and Nick Lester on the podcast as well and when those guys because I guess they I suppose with commentary you've got you've got the lead who's I suppose setting the scene and you know bringing it alive you know especially on radio commentary and and then you've got the kind of expert coming in and basically saying what they what they think but the skill and I, I'll i never forget it when I did five live radio five with with Jonathan Overend and even speaking to him on the podcast I, I probably had goosebumps for like 45 minutes in the podcast because his ability to like use words and the way that he spoke to to bring everything alive is just incredible but it's it's great that as you're getting the chance to try some of these new skills out as well
1: yeah it was a great experience for me for sure i don't know when i'll do it again hopefully he'll be competing so i won't have, have to but um yeah i i enjoyed it it was good to get out of my comfort zone but
0: Absolutely. And what I'd like to go into to now, I guess, I remember, and you won't remember this, but I remember seeing you in an under 10 event in Gloucester on like the, the world's quickest courts. And I think oh, you were at Oxtells. Yeah. I, I think you might've yeah. been playing, I was working at Edgebaston Priory. So I think you might've been playing like a, a Katie Malzoni or a Summer Yardley or, or, you know, what, one, one of those girls. But one thing that, stuck out from a long way was how good you were so young so how how did your tennis journey start
1: yeah so my story is interesting I was never forced into tennis by anyone or my parents were really supportive right from the start so I was I was on holiday with my family and we went to Portugal just for a couple of weeks and my parents put me in a couple of lessons with my, my cousin, just for fun, just for something to do while we were there. And, and, uh, right from the start, I, I just loved it. And I was really focused. I think it was easier to tell for them that I, I was really into it because my cousin was next to me kind of away with the fairies the whole time. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, I, I loved that. And the coach there was, was great. he, he told my parents after, I think, a couple of weeks of lessons, he said, you know, your daughter has really good hand-eye coordination and you should, you should really get her lessons when she goes back to England because, I mean, it sounds crazy to think now, but he told them... He said, I believe that your daughter could play for the country when she's wow. older. And obviously, my parents kind of laughed in his face at that time because, you know, I'd never played before and... Yeah. Um, but I guess he saw something and and I loved it. So as soon as I went back, I, I got some lessons uh, in in Bristol and uh, that's kind of how the whole journey started.
0: And how old were you then, Katie? How old were you when you were on the holiday?
1: Uh, I was seven.
0: So, so relatively late because... Uh, when I say relatively late, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? But uh, you you then in under tens won the Smirker Bowl, which is, I guess, seen as seen as the world European sort of championships under tens, if if there can be such a thing. So how did you get good so quickly?
1: I think I I loved sport in general from when I was really young. I always did a lot of different things. So I think that probably helped my development as an athlete. Um, I used to love playing hockey. Uh, I, I used to run 800 meters, and obviously tennis, and just having a lot of experience in different sports, I think, probably helped. Um, and then, just love—I loved tennis so much that I was always the one asking for lessons. I wanted to to do as much as I could, and it was never forced. Uh, so I think that's probably why I was able to to improve so much was because I just loved what I was doing I would always try and I remember when I first started I would just try and have as long a rally as I could I wanted to, right. s- to stay there and hit 500 more rallies because I just wanted to stay on court for as long as possible
0: that's so nice what a, it's such a lovely message that is for the listeners and and for any parents listening download that one minute. And keep playing it over and over and over. You know, it, it has it has to be driven. It has to be driven by the kids. It has to be driven by the players. And and to give an example, it was not that long ago. You're still a young, you're still a young pup, so it's not that long ago. What was your kind of weekly tennis program? How did your weekly life, I guess, with activities and sports look at that age, age eight or nine?
1: Um, I went to a school that had. It was quite a busy day I used to go from eight till five I think was the the times and uh we did so I would do it my my academic schedule all day um and in the afternoon sometimes we'd do sport at school so yep. whether that was hockey it was hockey not and rounders when I was young so yep. we'd kind of did those in the afternoon uh and then I would go from from school to my tennis lessons. Honestly, I wasn't playing a lot when I was that young. I was doing maybe an hour and a half a day, maybe five days a week, um, yes. nothing crazy. And yeah, and then after tennis, I would go home and, and do my homework the like a normal kid and then just do the same thing every day.
0: And who was coaching you in Bristol at that time?
1: Uh, my first coach was Rob Hawkins. Okay. Yeah, he's still there and um, he's actually, we, we still are in good contact with him and he came to watch me when I played at Wimbledon uh, nice. for the first one. So, yeah, it's, we've still got a good relationship with Rob.
0: And how influential do you think that first coach is for, for youngsters?
1: Extremely, you know, it's it can kind of, I guess, make or break if you really want to play that sport. Um, and Rob was great with me because he knew how much I love tennis and he helped me develop my technique. He was a great technical coach um, and we, he always made the sessions fun. You know, I didn't just have individual lessons. He would put me in a group. So I was with other girls and, and boys as well at that age. And yeah, I, I stayed with him till I was 10 or 11. So we did some really good work over the first few years that I was yeah. playing.
0: So if we go, so let's look at this scenario because I think there's a little bit of an obsession with tennis globally. You know, this is not related to any country of getting players playing lots and lots and lots and lots to become good. And I think one thing that's hit me from the podcast, it, it, well, lots of things, it's been, it's been an amazing experience doing this, but nearly every player that's come on has talked about, one, how much they absolutely loved playing. <laughs> Two, how much they did lots and lots of other sports. You know, that's kind of coming out loud and clear. So are we getting it wrong with this mentality of play more, play more, hit more balls, do more, do more to become good, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's very personal. Um, I think maybe as a culture in England, it's where we have the opportunity to, to kind of do a lot more different things. Um, you know, we have access to, to great facilities for all yep. different types of sports. And it's an interesting question because as I've gotten older, I've realized more that it is so personal. It's not one thing works for everyone. And I used to always think when I was kind of, I started to mature a bit in tennis, like probably between 12 and and 15. I always thought, you know, if I want to be the best, I have to work harder. I have to work longer than everyone else. And, uh, now I'm 21, so I'm still learning, but I've learned that it's not about that. It's what works for you. And, uh, For me, at the moment, I've struggled with a lot of injuries in the past few years and because I've just been trying to push myself harder and I always thought it was about being the strongest and working harder and, you know, putting in the hours and making, like, sweating, you know. But it's it's not just about that. It's about working smart, I guess, working smarter and the right way for you. And um, it's hard, actually, for me at the moment. I'm going through a stage where... I'm getting used to doing less and still being satisfied with that work.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, Putting the most I can into a shorter session and not even physically, but mentally, just really giving my best mentally every time I'm on the court.
0: Yeah, again, it's another, what what does working smart look like to you now?
1: I think the biggest part is being mentally engaged at the whole time yeah. because you can you can sweat and you can work and you can be tired after a session and, and say you've worked hard but if you kind of really break it down, which is what I've been doing, is did I give my best mentally to really be yeah. there and be engaged and um, do I think I'm a better person as well as a player today yeah. from what yeah. I've done? And I think that's the best way for me to kind of analyse... My satisfaction is based on how much effort I've given mentally, not not just physically, because for me, giving my physical effort is easy. I've always done that since I was a kid. Yeah. Um, but kind of really pushing myself mentally is something I've had to work quite hard on, and I'm still working on it. So I think, yeah, that's how I can really see the improvements.
0: Great reflections. And do you think you put too many hours in over the years?
1: Um, I think it's it's interesting like when I was a kid I already told you I I didn't actually play that much probably relative to the other kids my age I kind of just did what I what I wanted to do I enjoyed Um, and then as I got older I found that and still recently I'm, I'm still kind of getting used to this this new approach but Whenever I had a niggle or an injury, my first reaction would be, "Okay, I need to go as quick as I can to get back on the court, to get back in the match court, just do everything I can. And uh, the the last couple of months, I've really learned that I really need to just take my time and and feel good and feel healthy. And that's what's going to be able to make me go out there and compete for longer periods. Um, Yeah, so... (laughs) I don't know if it's more of an overtraining versus just training in the right way and and really looking after my body because now yeah. health is really a number one priority for me.
0: Yeah, it's such an ongoing learning experience. This tennis thing it's 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 unbelievable because even at the tender age of twenty one, you are a very experienced tennis player. You know, you know we've seen like I say playing internationally from the age of nine or ten. At what stage? And if I'd use these terminologies and you might, you might go with these terminologies or you might not, but at what stage did it go from fun to serious? You know, what point did you start thinking this is almost the job now? This is, I'm trying to make a career from this.
1: Um, Well, I remember, I remember getting my first invitation to a national camp from Judy Murray when I was, I think I was nine at the time. Wow. And that was kind of the first time i i thought oh my gosh like i'm i'm going to to london to to play with the the best players in the country i was like they actually think i'm good you know they only, yeah. they, they find you from looking at your results and um and i know 10 se- uh, nine and 10 seems so young to think that that's what i could do and uh, tennis was something that i loved at that age but i probably i didn't know if i could be a pro or I I was still doing everything else. I was still in normal school. I was still playing other sports until I was 13. So I would probably say became more serious when I was around 13, when because that that was when my family moved to the States. So I kind of had to, it was a transition from going from just like enjoying tennis and being good, but having fun to then okay, I'm going to start really committing to this because I had to start playing other sports. I had to miss more time from school. And that was kind of when I started to make a real commitment to it.
0: And just to go back there a little bit, even like in your voice, I could hear it, like getting selected for a national camp, this nine or 10, this, I guess, excitement, but also this reality of a youngster being given a chance, especially, I guess, from somebody like Judy Murray. But my mind then goes to you age 12, somebody else age 12, someone age 13, that they then don't get invited to that camp. (laughs) You know, so you've had this kind of high of, do you know what? I am someone, I could be someone, but I guess the danger of that at such a young age is then when you don't get it, you feel like you're not somebody.
1: Yeah, I, I completely get what you're saying. And actually, I kind of had that stage where when I was 10, I was I was very successful um, nationally and internationally. Um, and then I, I went through a transition phase probably between 11 and, and 13, 14, where I was trying to, I was working with some different coaches who were trying to improve my, my game to transition into... ITF juniors which was kind of coming in later years and the those few years were really tough because I I was trying to become more aggressive and when I was young I was very good at just being consistent and making more balls than my opponent and I had to my coaches were great they were trying to explain to me that in order to compete with the older girls as you as you get older then you're going to have to be stronger you're going to have to go for your shots more and that was a really tough few years for me where I was trying to improve my game, yeah. which resulted in a lot more losses than I was used to. And it also meant I wasn't selected for some things. And it I was I was still in the in the top few in the country. So I, I never really went out of that, but it was still hard for me to maybe not be as good as I was yeah. when I was younger. And I think. It's, it's different for everyone, but it kind of motivated me even more to, to just really push on and, and, and do my best every day because I had a great team around me that believed in me. And even though I was going through a tough time, and it's, it sounds crazy because I was still so young, but um, yeah, I think it's important to have people around you that believe in you because when Absolutely. you start to doubt yourself, you need yep. that reinforcement.
0: Yeah, but it's all it's all relative isn't it Katie you the the feelings that you're experiencing as a nine year old is relative to your world around you at nine <laughs> so the the, the experiences yeah. that you're you're dealing with as a 13 year old you don't have the world wisdom yet to to contextualize the way that you, the way that you feel so it's it's no less intense than, than it is as, as, as you get older. And, and I guess just uh, the big message that's coming loud and clear for me, and I think this is a really important message for the listeners, and especially for any youngsters that are, that are listening to this, everyone's got a different journey. You know, everyone has a, everyone has a different journey. The, you know, Dominic Kopfer, I spoke to a couple of days ago. That's going out, or by the time that this has gone out, that will already be out. He he was playing once a week until he was sixteen. I mean, that's like a real outlier outlier story, but that's what's worked. That's what's worked for him. And I guess I just want to get that message across that you know, by not being selected doesn't mean that you're not any good. It doesn't mean that it's time to give up. You know, you've got your own way of going and you've got your own successes to get out of that. And it's good even, because I guess my view of you, Katie, would be that you have just been kind of successful. You were successful (laughs) when you, you know, you were
1: up and down for
0: sure. You know, absolutely. And I think it's it's good for people to hear.
1: Um, I think also to add on that as well is that you think, I, I was the same. I remember being at events when I was under 14, under 12. And at the time, if I lost or if I thought I should have won a match, um, it felt like the end of the world. It felt like the most important thing that could have happened. And yeah. and now as a 21 year old looking back, I, I could not care less about what happened when I was that age. You know, it everything that did happen made me grow and it made me stronger. Um, learn about myself but like looking back it it doesn't matter what happens at that age because everything you're doing is just to help you when you as you develop and it it's it's I don't want to sound like it's irrelevant for the people going through it because it's not it will help you but it doesn't mean it's the be all end all if you win one match when you're 13 years old you just have to keep going going. and I, I still have to think like that now I'm 21 hopefully I have Ten more years at least on tour. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The
0: learning process. No, no, completely. And if we even take your situation, if you played tournaments this year, by February of next year, you won't remember the match yeah. in November of this year. It's it's like I think it's a really good strategy, actually, mental strategy for people going into tournaments, of almost reflecting on how they will feel about that. In, in a couple of weeks time, you know, then, you know, and just put it, putting that perspective on it. Um, so as we've gone through where you're now 15 and you're making final of a junior grand slam in Australia, you know, how, how was that experience?
1: <laughs> it was amazing. It was honestly so unexpected at the time. Um, I just started working with, a new coach, actually, I'm still working with him now. It's Julian Pico, French guy. Yep. you, you might know him. And uh, yeah, so I kind of I'd been progressing pretty steadily throughout the year before. 2014 was kind of when I started playing more ITFs, and uh, and I had my first experience at a junior slam at Wimbledon in 2014, and. Uh, I started to believe in myself more when I was competing with the high ranked girls and juniors and nothing crazy had happened. I just was progressing well. And um, when I went to Australia, I had a really good training couple of weeks before. There was uh, an event in Taralgon. I think it's still there, the grade one juniors the week before Australian Open. I've had some good practice weeks. Actually, played with some of the girls that were playing in the the qualifying for the women's event. Um, so we were able to practice in in Melbourne Park before. And then <laughs> it was funny in Chiralgan. I actually lost. I think I lost second round in the in the junior tournament. And I felt I felt really bad about it. Like I was really upset to lose. I was oh my gosh! I've come all the way to Australia and I've lost second round and. Um, in the lead-up, it's not good preparation for Australian Open, and uh, they had—I think it's the only junior tournament I've played where they had a consolation draw, and it was a consolation draw for players that lost in the first or second round of Terrell One. And uh, I, at the start, I—I was—I remember at the time I was—I just didn't want to do it. I was yeah. like, I'm not—I'm not playing consolation, like. <laughs> And Julian was there and he was like, no, you're playing. This is great opportunity for you to bounce back and to get some match practice and just work on some stuff going into next week. And anyway, I he so I, I played because uh, even though I was not very for it, but yeah, I played and it ended up being probably the most important thing to help me for Australian Open. And I played like four or five matches against girls that were were really good and actually I played I think I played the girl I played in the final of Australian Open in the consolation yeah. the week before which is is really funny to look back on and um, side it doesn't matter but I ended up winning the consolation and they gave me like a little medal for it but <laughs> irrelevant the most important thing was I I kept going and I was able to to get some good good feelings from the week before after having lost in the second round and. I think that gave me a lot of confidence going into Australian Open, which then, um, yeah, it, it was great. I,
0: yeah.
1: I was kind of, I was feeling really good and just taking it match by match and, yeah. and
0: I think that's arguably the most important medal you've ever won though, because what that tells me about your character. I'm telling you, ninety five percent of tennis players who. Don't want to play the consolation event, but the coach tells them they're playing, find a way to lose early. And they find (laughs) some juice justification or excuse in their head, or, you know, it goes into they whinge and they moan and I'm playing so bad. And what am I playing this for anyway? So I think that says so much about you. So that's a medal you need to keep because that's, look, ultimately, you know, this sport. And I'd love to get into this next as well. When we talk about success measures, you know, yes, at, at the end of the day, you could have Australian open title, you could have millions in the bank, but what have you done to your character? What, what things have you actually got to show for, for who you are? And I think that medal reflects that very well.
1: Yeah. And then of course, everyone sees that, that I made the final of Australian Open the week after, but nobody knew that I won the consolation in Terrell one. and that was a big, big part of the reason I was able to do well in Melbourne. So, yeah, I've still got it. Good. I've still got the
0: medal. Yeah, get it, get it in it, get it in a frame. Don't, don't lose that one. I'll put it next to the Australian Open one. You know, they, they go nicely hand in hand. <laughs> and, and what did anything change when you won us when you, when you made final in Australia? Because again. I started seeing you pop up, you know, you became a little bit more of a bigger deal. You know, I would imagine that your world slightly changed as well. There's more attention on you. How, how, how did you handle that at such a young age?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I think there was a lot of attention from the press in the UK, and at that time I was I was living already in the States with my family. So I went straight back from Melbourne to Wichita where my family lives. And I think that was probably a good thing for me was to go straight back into my normal environment and and go home. And obviously everyone there was really supportive. We had some friends that wanted to throw a party for me. So I did that, but um, no, I, I think it was important for me to just get straight back to work and not really be yeah. on too much of a high for too long because otherwise it makes the next step a lot harder,
0: yeah.
1: which in the end it was because I, I was straight back down to earth. My next tournaments after Australian Open were uh, three 10 Ks in Sharm El Shaikh. Right. So, so that was my first experience as a pro um, in tournaments and yeah, I was, yeah, it was definitely a humbling experience going to sharm after being in australia
0: and and after and after having all of that success you know when we talk about success in terms of in terms of winning at that age because i think making final of australian open as an 18 year old is one thing but doing it as a 15 year old there's a little bit more excitement that that comes with that has do you think that's applied more pressure to you? And I guess if we use the concept that we used earlier of, you know, you you don't get selected when you're 12 or 13, or have you been able to use that as almost a way of firing you up for your career even more?
1: I think at that age, it was, it wasn't that difficult for me to to deal with the pressure because I was just, I was so young that I didn't really think about it. I was just playing and, enjoying it the the pressures I started to feel were when I was a bit older um, when I was kind of transitioning from juniors to seniors properly you know I started to play a few events when I was 15 16 but I didn't really transition to professional tennis until more like going seven going on 17 18 um so yeah I think I mean I've always had a lot of support from the LTA and obviously being from a Grand Slam Nation during the summers, we have a lot of opportunities over the, the grass season. So um, that summer after Australia, I, I got some wild cards into uh, I played in Wimbledon Qualies that year for the first time. And now I look back on it, it seems like there would have been a lot of pressure, but I just didn't really feel it. I was just enjoying playing and, and doing my thing. And um, yeah, I would say it was more it was after, probably a year after where I started to feel, when I think it's when you, when things aren't going so smoothly, that's when you start to feel the pressure. And at, when I was 15, I didn't have that. It was kind of the transition, you know, when you start to play one of the biggest differences between juniors and professionals, I think is you just lose a lot more. And that's just yeah. the nature of it. Um, it. And it's really hard to hear and it's hard to accept, but that's just the reality is you're playing people that are playing for their their living, the, and yep. everyone's fighting really hard. And yeah, it was, it, that's that's when you really have to. It it, it makes you realise if you want to do it or not. I think yeah yeah when you, that for those first couple of years transitioning. Yeah, so that's probably when it became tougher for me.
0: And do you think us as coaches can educate that better? Because I guess, or do you think it's one of those things that you just have to go through?
1: I think it is personal as well. You know, some people, there's no issue with the transition. You know, like some girls you see that now, especially there's so many young girls in the top 100 who maybe I'm wrong, but they look like they haven't had any issue going from juniors to seniors. Yeah. Um, and for some people like me, it was it was more of a challenge. It took longer than probably what was expected of me. Yeah. Echoes, um, From being a successful junior. Um, I think the most important thing is having the solid team around you that really they've, like, I was really lucky to have, have Julian with me as a junior and then transitioning to the professional circuit too. And it's a funny story because although I told you about the story from Teralgon where he made me play the consolation there's a similar experience when I went to sham for those 10 Ks. It was in, I think it was in March just after Australia was I, the first two tournaments I played there, I had no idea what to expect going into it as a, I, I didn't know the level of 10 Ks or cause I'd only yeah. played junior up until then. And I actually ended up losing first round in the first two weeks. Um, so I lost first round, first round. And I was so down about it. I was, I was having to study because I was still at school. So every time I wasn't practicing, I was, I was in the room and you know, when you lose first round and especially in the resort, you're in the same place every day. So I lost first round. I had to wait one week until I could play my next match. And it was just practice studying and it was just making me really down. And when I lost the second week, uh, I actually called my mom and I said, I want to come home. I don't want to do this anymore. And it was really hard. And again, I had a, a talk with Julian and he told me, no, we're staying. Like, you're going to really we're going to work really hard this week and also try and enjoy, enjoy this experience. You know, this is what the reality is of the tour yeah. and um, we spent that week trying to have a bit more fun off the court as well as working yeah. hard and practice. And the third week I actually came through colleagues and ended up winning the tournament. So if I oh, hadn't, wow. stayed, if I hadn't have stayed and, and do that, then, I wouldn't have had my first win on the on the pro tour, and it's not just about the win. It was more about the the way that I managed to come through that mentally, which it was really hard. Um, but yeah, I got I got some great experiences from it, and, and obviously learned mm. a lot to do that.
0: But it says so much again about you, but also about Julian. What a, what a yeah how lucky are you to have such a wise head in your corner? You know, those, those couple of examples, you know, and a a big shout out to Julian for that. But no, I think what I was saying as well, Katie, is like, we know I'm, I'm an old fart now. And I've been around this sport for, as you will, if you, you go into coaching, when you stop playing for 30, 35 years. And we know that it's a losing sport. Yeah, It's a sport we know. I mean, we know that, Roger Federer has lost 46% of points he's ever played, you know, and the Dallas lost 45%. He's ever played at Roland Garros. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's won 13 Roland Garroses, you know, like it's, it's a sport where even if you're top 20, top 30 in the world, there's a chance that you'll lose more matches than, than you'll win in your, in your career. Yet I'm completely with you and I can feel you in terms of, you know, a, Again, I'm not. I didn't play to your level, but I played to an okay level. The losses in the first round, to then spend a week waiting to go again, and you're watching all of your peers playing in the tournament, and it's horrible, and it hurts, and you're like, ah, oh, if only I'd won that break point, I should could be in the quarters. Because we also know the margins are so small. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, can can we educate that to to youngsters? Or do you think, like, let's say, if I sat you down age 12 and said, right, Katie, this is the reality. (laughs) This is what's going to happen, not in a negative way, but just so you can prepare your mind. Do you think that would have an impact? Or do you think it's one of those things that you just kind of have to go through and learn that yourself?
1: Um, I think as a coach, it's probably hard to really – to get that across, because even for me, if I heard that from a coach, it would still be hard to accept. Even though, if I, yeah. if I really trusted that coach, and which I did, which is kind of what happened with Julian. I think maybe for players to hear what other players have gone through from personal experience, I think is maybe as yeah. important than as hearing it from from your coach. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, but also, also understanding that. Your coach is going to be there with you through it all. It doesn't matter if yeah. you, you have those those tough times. But um, yeah, knowing that it doesn't it doesn't matter if you go from from winning a lot in juniors to, to losing a lot in, in the pro, that, that doesn't change how how they believe in you. And yeah. Um, that yeah, that's just part of the sport. You know, everyone goes through it and at different stages of their careers as well, you know, you see some players that win a slam and then they struggle for the next six months you know what happens it's it's just the sport it's nature and because it's it's a it's a short career in relative terms but it feels long when you think about it you could be on tour for um 10 12 15 years you know you have to be prepared for lows no one has only highs in their career so, so
0: yeah yeah Look at Sloane Stevens, like Sloane Stevens. Didn't she win the slam and then lost like 16 first rounds in a row afterwards. And then, then went I made final of another slam, and Muguruza is another one, you know, she, it feels like Muguruza gets past the second round. She wins the tournament, <laughs> but then she yeah. has so many weeks, you know, so there's, there's a lot of examples out there.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting. You know, I think also what I said about just, not the highs not being too high and the lows not being too low just try and keep it as stable as you can obviously celebrate your victories and and everything but trying and keep it as stable as possible is gonna mentally be the easiest way to go yeah, through everything
0: absolutely. and and Katie Swan age 21 how do you measure success in your head now
1: <laughs> that's a good question you know uh, I think from the last couple of months I've had struggling with with injuries and um, just missing competing, you know, at the moment, I know I'm going to be super grateful just to be able to compete whenever I can and to have my my health. Um, I think a big goal for me for next year would be to be as healthy for as long as possible, and that would be a successful year. Is if I if I'm able to stay healthy, and I'm. I think that seems very like a humbling goal. It, it is, you know, I've spent so many years like trying to push on, having high expectations of myself, and I think the reality is that I just want to be back enjoying competing without pain, and um, <laughs> yeah, I think. For me success is being able to enjoy what I'm doing and and I think everything else will follow with that I'm not I don't have any um measures on outcome or I just want to be able to compete and and feel good out there.
0: And, and has that changed over the years?
1: Yeah I think so for sure you know when when I was younger I always thought that winning was the most important thing and I've been lucky to have people around me that have been able to educate me better on on that that it's not as simple as that, you know. Like you yeah. just spoke about, you don't just win your whole career. No one does. So, yeah, I think just to accept the the life on the tour as it is and just doing my best every day is the only thing that I can really control and like you guys call it, controlling the controllables. I think that's the best best thing you can do. And you can't, you can't control an outcome of match. You don't know, regardless of who you're playing, you don't know what's going to happen. So if you just give your best and, you know, that's, that's all you can ask really as, as a player and as a coach watching. Um, even if you lose, it should, it should still be a win for you guys if, if you've done everything you can.
0: Absolutely. And if you were able to jump back seven years and give yourself a bit of advice as a 14-year-old, what would it be?
1: It would probably be to do with that, to be honest. Just, you know, and like we were saying before, in in seven years, you probably won't even remember this match. So just really use it as a way to, to learn and to grow and, you know, we always say that you learn more from your losses than your wins. So, give your best. If you win, great. Use it to to feel good. Um, but you're probably going to learn more if you lose anyway. So, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to lose. It's it's okay to fail or fail, but in yeah. air quotes. But it's not really if you're if you're learning from it and yeah. being able to to keep going through anything that's kind of thrown at your way. And yeah. as long as as long as you love what you're doing, which I do, and I've never at any point in my career considered stopping. I've always loved tennis and yeah. sometimes you forget that along the way, the reason why you started. So I think just remember that you're doing the thing that you love and and do your best.
0: Katie, I absolutely love where your mindset's at. Honestly, you sound like you sound clear, you sound strong, you sound, you know, you literally you've pretty much talked about our philosophies. You're gonna to have to become an ambassador at Soto Tennis, the way that <laughs> the way that, the way that you're talking, you know, and and I have no doubt whatever happens over the next 10 years, that's gonna lead you to a happy, healthy place, you know, and that's that ultimately is is has to be everyone's aim and goal, you know, and then you know, the byproducts of that is. You might lift some trophies, you know, and you might yeah, you might yeah. put a bit of money in the bank, or you might meet Prince Charming in Northern Spain and and run off and live a different life. How, however, it might go. But yeah, moving I guess moving it to a slightly different topic, and I guess this question's a little bit motivated from from my last guest or, or one of my last guests, Sergi Starkovsky, who. Has obviously been, he's been quite outspoken about, and, and we actually, it's well worth a listen because um, not that we went at each other, you know, he articulated himself very well and contextualized what he was trying to say, but we definitely had a difference of opinion. You know, I would, I would very much be, you know, I would say Andy Murray's my inspiration on this. You know, he's, he's such an incredible advocate for, for quality in sport and, and and i guess that the the thing that i'd like to ask is what sergi was saying was round about kind of the minorities or round about you know we we actually got into the rate, we got into all sorts of discussions which we're not going to go into today but how do you feel as a as a female athlete playing to an elite level you know in a, in a, in a global sport how how do you feel perceived? How do you feel supported? How do you feel that the, the women's tennis game is supported in an equal sense or not?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting topic. Obviously, it's been spoken about a lot recently. And from my from my perspective, I actually think tennis as a whole is, is, a, is doing a really good job with equality. Um, I don't think we have less opportunities than the men. Um, I think we're it's, it's about more about raising awareness. I think for everyone, just to see that we do what the guys do and we do it just as well. I mean, relative, you know, Completely. um, yeah. I think it's great to have, we have some really good ambassadors for that. And like that you have Andy, like you said, um, he always speaks very openly about supporting women's equality and, um someone with such a big name like that, who's achieved so much for the sport. I think it's great to to have that. Um, one of one of my experiences with that was playing Fed Cup. I think when when we were actually preparing for some some media for Fed Cup, we were learning some some things about the difference in stats between how many people know what Davis Cup is versus that, Fed Cup. Yeah. I don't remember the stats, but I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Nobody knows what Fed Cup is. Yeah, yeah. Davis Cup. And it's obviously different because we've had, as a nation, we've had Davis Cup champions. Yeah. Um, and I think we had the opportunity to really showcase our women's women's tennis and Fed Cup when we were playing in Bath yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah. For, for that tie. And it was the last year now, right? yeah <laughs> I've lost track of time
0: but last last um, January February I think so I was I was watching yeah. you I was watching you girls in Tunisia so my uh, I was in Tunisia with with a few of few of my players and my routine was I went to Ch- uh, we we'd play and actually Evan made final of the two events so we we'd get up you know what it's like when you're winning you have your routine and then I'd come back and then I would get Facebook on in my apartment in Tunisia and 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 watched the whole the whole tie and I was mesmerized by it. And actually, you played one of my girls, actually. Um oh, really <laughs> a Greek girl who I've coached from the age of 10, Anna Akadianu. She came in, she got I was watching, and she was back, she was back in Greece at that time, taking a couple of exams. And I was like, I'm watching you watching, I think it was the Sakari match against Joe. And then she was like, Dan, don't, I'm, I'm about to go on court. They've pulled me in to play doubles. <laughs> and, and she was extremely nervous. And you girls were like on fire, like <laughs> the set, like taking it down. I was like, come on, girls, give Anna a bit of a chance here. So, yeah, but <laughs> sorry, back to you. The, the experience of, of Bath seemed amazing.
1: Yeah, no, it was great. And I think, I think it was great for the viewers. You know, every day we had full crowd um, watching and, that tie then obviously led to the tie at the copper box in April, where again there was big crowds. And I think those two ties were really important for tennis in Great Britain for women. Um, we heard from our media manager that the the viewings were great and and also we'd inspired a lot of, of girls, young girls, and hopefully boys as well, you know, to get into tennis and um, so I think the main thing really is, is just the awareness is for people to understand that we do what the boys do and we do it just yep. as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's definitely improving.
0: And if there was one thing that you would change in order to help that even more, what would it be?
1: Um, I think... I think just continuing with the awareness, you know, with the screenings and stuff, you know, have more, have the same accessibility to watch women as you, as you do for men. Yep. I, I, I think it's, I think it's doing, they're doing a better job with that in general. Um, and then having people speak out about it, you know, keep talking about it because yep. it doesn't go away. It's really important to know that as a girl, you can achieve just as much as a boy. When yeah, you're young, people think maybe that, that girls girls can't do what boys can do, but we can. So, yeah, just absolutely. keep reinforcing that from a really young age. That doesn't matter if you're if you're a girl. It, it can be an advantage as well, you know.
0: So. Definitely, very good, Katie. Um, and what would the for those listening who who maybe aren't that heavily involved in tennis but like to play tennis recreationally, you know. Men play better than women. They hit it harder. All this kind of nonsense. Do you know what I mean? But what what are what are the main differences? Do you think between between the sport, women's tennis and and men's tennis?
1: Physically, do you mean? Yeah,
0: I guess physically, tactically, technically. What what do you what do you see? Do you do you see there being a difference? Do you see that there's much difference in the game? I guess it would just be good to. To understand your view on it or your, your insight of someone who's who's so heavily involved in the game.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, there's the genetic side, which is just it's just what it is. You know, boys are guys in general are just stronger. You know, we that that's nothing to do with how good or not good women are at tennis. It's just the body. You know, the the guys can generate more with their serves, with their ground strokes. That the ball is is heavier. Um, and you see in the men's a lot more that, you know, people hold serve or that it's more common for guys to to hold their serve and probably in women's. I don't know the stats, but there's probably a lot more breaks of serves in women's tennis. It's, so it's
0: about it's about it's something I've studied a lot. So you would get, you would get, so John Isner is obviously crazy. He's someone like 95, 96% of games he holds, but you'd get, you get maybe a Dan Evans is about 77 78 and Pliskova who's who's the highest on the women's is 79. So Ash Barty I think is 66 67% of, of service holds so uh, it, kind of the, the the stats that I've looked at there's about a 10% range. It's not as it's not actually as much as as some people think actually. That's my Yeah,
1: so yeah, I guess that, so. Then that—that's still a pretty interesting stat. That in men's you'll see a lot more uh, holding of serve, whereas yeah. whereas women's is a bit more unpredictable, and you see that in the tournaments and the results as well. Is that especially in the in the slams you see with the guys it's pretty consistent with who's making semis and then winning yeah. the event, whereas women every tournament it's it's different, yeah. which I think is great. You know, it, it brings so much variety to and unpredictability to, yep. to tennis. And like you see just in French Open, you had some new faces, obviously Swiatek winning. And um, I think it's great for, for the women to, like people coming up is seeing, you know, it's very open. Like it's, yep. things are changing all the time. You're seeing a lot more variety within people's games now. Um, I think it's really exciting time for women's tennis because definitely. you know you have so many different names that are doing well and, and young girls coming through and older girls that are doing well. You know, it's it's a really interesting time.
0: Yeah, definitely. when and you're saying that the game's changing because that's another. It's another comment you hear a lot. Are oh, all women play the same? All women just smack it. You know, like these kind of just lack lack of intelligence. But you know, you hear you hear it being said. Do do you see do you see the game developing? Is that something that you, as a, an up and coming professional tennis player, really taking note of and and trying to add that those variations to your game as well?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think it is something that I've been working on, especially with um, some of the injuries I've been having. It's something that I've been able to work on more while other things are recovering. So. Adding some variety, and you see it a lot more now with with girls like Andrescu. She she has a lot of tools and in the toolbox oh, yeah. with her game, and uh, and attack as well. You know, watching her, you can see she has so much, so many things. Um, my coach talks about it Esteban, as a as your team, as your football team. You know, every shot is a player, and you need right. to have the players involved to be able to 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 do well and to. To have a whole game you know to be yeah. the player that you want to be and you need all of those things to be working to some extent you know yeah. obviously people have strengths and weaknesses but to really be a well-rounded player you need all those things yeah. um, and it's showing more and more i think that people are. it's it's a lot easier these days to be able to analyze the sport so with technology you can really look back on stats and, and people find people's weaknesses in important moments, you know, she serves here on big moments. And I think if you really work on everything in your game to have an answer for everything that can happen, then you have a, a better chance to succeed.
0: Very good. Are you good at this? You, you, you're good at these answers. I tell you what, for <laughs> someone who said, you get nervous when you do commentary and you do these things. It's unbelievable. The, the, the insight you're giving, Katie, we're going to, we're going to move actually into just a last couple of things and in a couple of little kind of fun, fun bits. Uh, we do have our quick fire round, but I also want to add something in as well. Um, Cause I know that you love the sport and you'll, you'll have some good answers on this. So your favorite all-time women's tennis player we're going to break it down i think it was um who did it was it andy and rafa did it on instagram they did it for for the men's i think during the lockdown and it was it was good fun so whose mentality are you taking
1: mentality sorry that Men, just I've uh,
0: yeah mentality of of all time any woman of all time
1: of all time whoa that's big um I think just from watching a lot recently, I think Azarenka is just incredible. Yeah. I think the way she's been able to to go through what she's been through and find the the positives from it and learn from it. You know, she was so successful before everything happened with her son. And yep. to now I actually saw an interview she did in or an answer to an interview she did in in the US Open. And they kind of asked her how she was able to to find this new level that she she had. And she, what I found really interesting about it was, she said that when she was able to kind of remove her ego from having high expectations of herself and just be humble to work and just to go back to the basics and give her best, and she was able to find um, new a new level that she, I think, is even better than what it was before. So. Yeah, I think and you see when she plays, she just doesn't give anything away. She's fighting every single point. Um, she's a dog when it comes to competing. Yeah. So I think she's should be my mental pick.
0: That's yeah. a lovely answer. Forehand.
1: Um I think Osaka, I think her forehand is huge. And yeah. Um, yeah, you can see when yeah. she plays it.
0: She's gonna win, she's gonna win some more, isn't she? Osaka, that's for sure. Backhand,
1: um,
0: got a lot of options.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of nice (laughs) backhands out there. Do you know what? I think just because she's so versatile, I'm gonna go with Ash Barty because she has the slices brutal. Um, yeah, yeah, she's so solid, and
0: she's also a professional cricketer. And I heard, I saw she just won a golf tournament as well a few weeks ago. Oh,
1: really?
0: Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like yeah, that's
1: why you talk about all round sports. Yeah.
0: She, yeah, she's incredible. I, I think she's someone actually, sorry to go off off topic, that we we need to really sell in the sport because what an inspiration she is, you know? And then she was like, she was then watching the Australian rules football with like a beer in hand. And then she was, you know, she kind of does it all. You know, she, yeah. I think she gets to sort, inspires so many different people and, and different levels. Serve.
1: I mean, based on stats that I know, I think I'd go with Pliskova. I think I think she the best over in terms of stats. So
0: I can't believe you didn't go Serena there. Serena, oh.
1: Serena's technique <laughs> is the best, I think.
0: Yeah.
1: But if you're going by numbers, I think Pliskova has better stats.
0: Okay, we'll we'll I'll I'll give it to you. I disagree with it, but we'll give it to you. It's your podcast. Uh, movement.
1: Hallop, I think. Halliford's is a joke. She's yeah. so quick. Yeah, always there. And Volley. Mm.
0: You and you and Harriet Dart after what I saw at the Fed Cup. <laughs> How are you gotta get you two uh, in there.
1: <laughs> well yeah, if if I didn't say it myself, which <laughs> no, I think I think Ash as well. I think she's such an all-round,
0: yeah.
1: all-round player. I think yeah, she knows exactly what she's doing everywhere. So
0: that's a well, it's a good player that you've developed so if you yes. after the quick fire you need to get on the court to start trying to develop all these areas to be yes. as good as all the people you've talked about but <laughs> qu- quick fire um clay courts or hard court hard court serve or return Serve. injury timeout or not should it be allowed
1: I mean, based on my experience as being injured quite a lot, I would say yes, because that's actually helped me quite a lot. Okay. But I don't like it as a, a tactical thing. I've never used that as a tactical thing. Yeah, but but I, I think you should be able to if you need it.
0: Yeah. but that's where we've got to. I asked, I've asked pretty much these questions on every podcast. And where we got to is you can have an injury timeout if you're about to die. uh, but you also you should get killed if you use it as a strategy which too many people do it's used too much and then a warm-up on the court or not so I know it's four minutes now but should that be allowed for the game of tennis I guess the where that question comes from is journalists commentators lots of different people we've had on the podcast say that's the biggest nightmare for them and they believe we lose people in the sport because of the slowness of it but as a player do you think that that should happen on the court or not
1: yeah to be honest i don't think about everything else that goes on i think i like it i think it's helpful for me as a player so yes i would keep them
0: your favorite grand slam wimbledon hands down yeah should there be a joint atp and wta or not
1: i don't know i don't know do i have to answer it <laughs> i don't know because i think it would have benefits and it'd be pros and cons for both i think you know they're separate organizations so it's hard to know how it would work if they were run together um i don't know
0: good answer it's a good answer you've, you've rationalized i like it good answer roger or rafa Roger. Serena or Venus. Serena. And one rule change that you would have in tennis. Yeah, I'm gonna
1: I'm gonna throw out there like something that will never happen, but just for fun. Um I would (laughs) as a dog lover and sometimes (laughs) feeling very stressed during matches, you know, having that therapy dog that can be there (laughs) outside of the court if you need a little cuddle halfway
0: through (laughs) the match. Well, Zverev it seems. Have you seen his dogs being coming? He's won the last two events, and he's had his dog at the trophy giving on the centre court. Oh, I you seen that. Yeah, you'll, so you'll have to look that up. And, and I, after forty years of not ever having a dog in my house, we got we got our first dog Rafa about ten days ago. Oh, so, so, if
1: you are, so you're the Rafa side
0: of. Of no we're not we're not actually the family uh, me and my wife are roger the kids are rafa um but we live in spain and a dog called roger in spain people yes. would give us give us some luck so uh, we've got a little golden lab who is i must admit i get the therapeutic thing although i don't get it yet in the middle of the night when he's crying at four o'clock in the morning but hopefully oh he'll don't worry
1: it will get past that
0: He'll calm down, but he's very cute. Katie, you have been a star. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's been Thanks lovely chatting.
1: A lot, no, it's been nice to talk to you.
0: And and all the very best of luck with the injuries. Keep working hard, keep doing your thing, and, and keep smiling.
1: I Will do. Thanks a lot,
0: Dan. Thanks, Katie. Take care. A big thank you to Katie for coming on the show and the very best of luck as she continues to get herself ready for maybe the back end of 2020, but if not, 2021. Key messages I would take away again there from the podcast, Katie, age 21. She's one of the best players in the world, age 10. And it's taken her 10, 11 years to get to the point that her mindset is understanding that there's many different success measures on the court, off the court, and ultimately what it boils down to is am I happy? Am I healthy? Am I getting better? And if we could all live our life with those simple messages, we won't go too far wrong. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for rating, reviewing, and all of the support on the podcast. I'm Dan Kiernan, my co-host John McGann, we are Control the Controllables.